Well, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide our our time together in his word. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, We come before you humbled that because of Jesus and his victory on the cross, we are forgiven and we are healed and we are given new life. We thank you, Jesus, that you do hold the victor's crown, that you are victorious over sin and death, and that even today, death does not reign in our lives. And God, we are grateful and, and, and so thankful that by your grace and in your sovereign care, you have called us to be a part of your family as sons and daughters, forgiven and redeemed. God, we are reminded again that you do not hold a record of wrongs. You do not remember our past, that through the cross of your son, every sin is forgiven. And so we approach you today, Father, healed and restored. And, and God, I pray that as we open your word this morning and are challenged with the things that we will see, that you would awaken our hearts to uh, the truths that you have declared. Help us to walk in obedience and in faith. And so, God, we, we want to thank you for what you will do as your spirit works in our hearts. God, I pray that you would have your way now and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're a serious student of Scripture, even semi-serious, if, you, if you've read through the Bible in any length, and especially the Gospels, you see that Jesus said and did some very controversial things. He bucked the status quo. And along the way, he would ruffle feathers as he was announcing who he is as the Son of God. In a very real way, Jesus came and turned the religious world upside down. That's one of the things that draws me to Jesus. What I mean by that is that the scripture gives testimony to his uniqueness. He's not like us. And praise God for that. The Gospels are full of his actions and words where you often think, why did he say that? Why did he do that? I was confronted with that thought again this week. Our our family's been reading the New Testament together and every week we make time to talk about what we're reading. And we were in the Gospel of Luke And in the passages that we were looking at, there was something that Jesus said, not only there, but in another place that every time I read it, I'm just kind of challenged. And and it's like God's word hits me across the face. And it's what he says in Luke uh, chapter six. Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. I read those words, and I think, Amen. And then I think, Oh, Lord, I need help. He said this again in Matthew 5 through 7 in a a little bit different way. But uh, Luke here is quoting Jesus's words on the Sermon on the Mount. And when I read these passages, they hurt because every part of my fleshly heart doesn't want to love when I'm wronged. 
Am I the only one? Okay. Uh, It's hard for me to not be critical when I am wounded by someone's actions. It's hard for me to be able to take that step back and, and not be so personally offended that I react. And before you think I must be in some kind of trouble, listen, I don't think I have a long list of enemies. I don't think I do. I don't think that there's people lurking around every corner out to get me, but there are times in life when I've been wronged. Have you ever been wronged? Right. Some of you are living in a delusional world, if you say now. Um, Have you ever felt justified in wanting payback, revenge, retaliation, or vengeance? It's a supremely human response to feel that way. And yet Jesus calls us to a higher way of life. Jesus came across a ton of hostility in his ministry. And Peter records what his attitude was for us in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That even while Jesus was suffering on that Last evening into the last day of his life being handed off to religious leaders and Roman leaders that were out to get him and and crush him. While he was falsely accused and mocked and beaten and spat upon. While he heard the crowds of people that he came to redeem cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus never, ever returned their actions to them. He kept entrusting himself to the will of the Father. And we read in the Gospels that even while he died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus is the model of loving our enemies. He said the hard things and he lived it. To love this way admits that we trust God is completely sovereign over us and his creation. And before we ever see it in the life of Christ, we also see it modeled in King David. He's not king yet. He's been anointed by God. But David, living some 1,000 years before Jesus came to the earth, modeled, lived out, what it meant to be to trust God in his life when people were pursuing him, when people were wanting to challenge him, and when ultimately one man, King Saul, wanted to take his life. This morning, as we continue our look into David's life, we're going to see the goodness of God at work on David's behalf while he is being chased after by King Saul, who in every meaning of the phrase, is a madman. He's completely lost his mind. The cheese slid off the cracker. He's lost it. 
What I appreciate about these chapters in First Samuel is that they are completely transparent. If it weren't for God's protection, David and David being aware of God's protection, he would have gone off the rails a few times. And we're going to see that in this passage. We're going to look at five chapters this morning. Lord, have mercy. And David would have been completely justified in avenging his name. He was falsely being pursued. Saul was completely fearful of what David was about to bring. In each case, David trusted in the will of God. And God provided relief for his suffering heart. Now, that's important for us to consider when we are wronged. It is often very difficult to not have an emotional response. In fact, I believe our response is normal when wronged. But what's what gets us into trouble is the emotional response when we overreact in our feelings. How many of you are able in the heat of the moment to be able to take a step back and have that stoic kind of out of body response and think clearly when wronged? That's hard. It's so hard. We see the danger of that in these chapters of an emotional response. Of lighting the match. Of in an instant we can react and cause great trouble. But we also see the safeguards that God is providing to help us so that we don't destroy everyone around us every time our our feelings are hurt. I mean, think about that. If you react emotionally and go over the top every time your feelings are hurt, your world is going to be completely different. I've seen and I've watched people live that way. And they have such a small circle, if a circle of people around them, because they've pushed everyone away. And so, if we're a person, if we're a people that tend to overreact, I I pray that God's word would be an encouragement to you this morning. And if you're a person that has ever been wronged, which I think covers every person in this room this morning, I pray that you see God's sovereign care over your life as he watches over you and invites you to trust him even when life is difficult. Now, as we look at the text this morning, we're going to look at chunks of the passages. We're not going to read every verse. We're not going to dissect every phrase. We're going to look at the chunks, and what I'm going to encourage you to do is on your own, whether today or this week, read 1 Samuel 22 through 26 on your own, and and just kind of get the big picture of what's going on. And so, you know, in, in a story format, we're going to walk our way through this passage. Now, if you've been with us, you know that the story of 1 Samuel is focusing on two main people. It started with King Saul, and now King David. King Saul was appointed by the people of Israel. God relented and gave them the king that they wanted, and Saul had no heart for God. 
And we see that shortly after Saul's reign to the throne, his affections for doing the right thing changed. And so in judgment, God took his spirit from him. And through the prophet Samuel, who was the final judge of Israel, God anointed David as a teenager in the fields, as a shepherd boy, and set him aside to be the future king. And we see that when the Spirit of the Lord went away from Saul, that a spirit of evil tormented Saul. And it was from the Lord. And God was completely justified in doing that. And so Saul would have these fits of anger and rage. And we read in 1 Samuel 16 that every time Saul would have a fit of rage, what would he do? He would call for David and David would come and play his harp and play music and his soul would be encouraged and nourished and and Saul would calm down. But Saul was this person that was now living in longer fits of rage. He was completely afraid of losing power. Saul had tried to this point at least three times of killing David. Saul's not holding back. In chapter 22, we read that after David left the cave that Pastor Dustin shared last week, David first sent his family to live in Moab. We read that in verse 3. They went to Mizpah of Moab. Now, Moab was on the eastern side of Israel, but it was foreign ground. It was foreign territory. It's interesting why David would send his family there because his great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabitess. And so he's like, all right, let's, let's send them to Moab. And, and he wants them to be safe because Saul has lost his mind, is pursuing David. David fears for his, his life and also his family's life. And so he tells them to go and he departs from them. And in verse 6, we read, Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah. That's where Saul lived in Gibeah. And we're going to look in a map in a few minutes to kind of put this all together. And he had his spear in his hand and he's in this process of hunting David down. Like Saul is like Elmer Fudd chasing. What's his name? Bugs Bunny. Thank you. Like he, he is so focused on wanting to hunt him down that he can't get to him. But that's all he sees in his blind rage. And so he goes after to pursue David. So where does he go? Well, he knows that David went to Nob. And we read that in chapter 21 as he went and took the consecrated bread to feed himself and the men that were with him. And so Saul goes to Nob, he confronts the priest and he says, was David here? Yes, David was here. And, and the priest is trying to figure out, he's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. David has done nothing wrong. David, he says in verse 14, Ahimelech, the priest answered the king and said, 
And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is the captain over your guard and is honored in your house? He doesn't understand why Saul is so upset. But what does Saul do? He seeks to kill this priest for helping David. And so he turns to all of the men that are with him in verse 17. We read in verse 17 and halfway through that verse, the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. So these Jewish soldiers with Saul would not listen to the king's order. They're like, we're not killing God's priests. That's that's not a good thing to do. So what does Saul do? Does he say, okay, well, let's pack up and go home? No, there was one in their midst named Doag, who was an Edomite, who wasn't from Israel. And he's the one that ratted David out in Nob because he was in Nob in chapter 21. And he's with Saul. And, and Saul looks to Doag and he says, can you do it? And, and Doag's like, yeah, I can do it. I can kill this guy and I can kill all the priests. And we also read in verse 19 that Doag struck Nob the city of the priests with the edge of the sword. Not just the priests, right? Both men and women and not just men and women, children and infants. Also oxen, donkeys and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. It's strange to me that this one man was able to do this much evil. But it's all under Saul's tutelage. Saul gave the authority. He didn't stop it. The whole city is raised due to Saul's perceived disobedience of what they did. But there's one that escaped. Abiathar. Verse 21, Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. David accepts responsibility because he was there. And what does he say to Abiathar? He says, come with me. I will protect you. And so in chapter 23, we read that Abiathar was with David now, but David is still on the run. And what's going on here in chapter 23 is that word gets back that the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. And that's where the grain was, that there was value in the grain. And so as they would thresh the weed and get the grain, the Philistines were coming in and taking the plunder of what should have been the cities. And we read that word got out about this. And so in verse two, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines. Verse three, but David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And you see David, a man after God's own heart, he's seeking God's face. He wants to hear from the Lord and he wants to make sure that this is God's will. And so he sought the Lord. He reached out to the Lord and the Lord confirmed, I want you to go and defend the city. David's men didn't want to go. They're like, listen, how are we going to survive against the Philistines? They have many. We have few. But David is resolved because he heard from God 
and he goes to the city and defends the city. And what what happens? He, he gets the victory. He pushes the Philistines out. The city is saved and rescued. In verse eight, we read or verse seven, we read when it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So he's in a fortified place. Saul's like, yes, he's in a cage. I'm going to go after him. But the providence of God is at work. And we read that David receives word as Saul was plotting against evil. And he says to the priest that's with him, Abiathar, that escaped, Nob, bring the ephod here. And so through the priestly garments, they were able to discern the will of God. And we read this throughout the Old Testament in different places. And basically, God gives David the order, you need to go. Saul goes to the, the, the town. And Keilah doesn't stand up for David. They, they give in. Why? Because Saul had just been at Nob and destroyed the whole city. And they're probably fearing their own lives. lives. And we read in verse 13, David and his men, now 600. It's growing. The number is growing. Arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told that Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country. He's taking the high ground. He's hiding in, in the rocky formations and in the caves and all those places in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. It, you get the sense, right? That like David is moving, Saul is chasing, and they just kind of keep chasing each, or Saul keeps chasing after him. It's during this time in verses 15 through 18 that we read that Saul is chasing after David, can't keep up with him, can't catch him, but somebody finds David, right? It's Saul's son, Jonathan. I, I find it completely, not ironic, but interesting. Saul can't find David. Jonathan knows where David is and goes right to him and meets him. And he goes to him and he, and, and what does he do? He restores the, the promises that he made. Jonathan says to David, we're going to renew the covenant. I got your side. I got your back. I'm going to lift up your name always, David. And David promises that, that he would honor Jonathan. He, he encourages him and says, thank you for being a faithful friend. They renew their covenant in verse 18. What's interesting is this is the last time they will ever speak to each other. Because after the events that we're going to look at, David leaves the country for a long season of time until Saul is dead. And we read that when Saul dies in battle, Jonathan dies with him. And so the, the Ziphites came up at, to Saul at Gibeah and said, is not David hiding with us in the strongholds of Horish in the hill country, in the places? And so what does Saul do? Okay, let's get the men. We're going to go after him and chase him again. As Saul pursues in verse 24, in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon, when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness. 
Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. It's like David's here, Saul's here, and they just kind of keep chasing after each other. As Saul is getting closer and closer and closer, look what we read in verse 27. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Coincidence? Absolutely not. God is providentially working to protect David. The Philistines think that they're doing their thing. Saul is distracted because as king, he has to give up his own personal pursuit and he has to defend the people. So he leaves. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. In chapter 24, well, let me just show you this map, just so you can kind of get a sense. You know, Engedi is down by the Dead Sea, Masada, Ziph, Maon, Hebron. Those are all on the, the southeastern parts of Israel. That's kind of where all of these events are taking place in 23, 24, 25, 26. We're in this region and in and around the wilderness areas in the rocky cliffs and all the places because like Bethlehem is up to the north and Jabus, which is Jerusalem, is right next to it. You know, we're getting higher and higher in the topography of Israel. But in these areas around the Dead Sea, there's these great valleys because that's where water is. But now they're sh- the land sharply is going up. And David is kind of fortifying himself in the hill country to protect himself. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 24. Saul returns from pursuing the Philistines, and he goes right back to pursuing David. He's lost his mind. He's in the wilderness of the Engedi. The Engedi is right on the edge of the Dead Sea there. Saul had 3,000 men with him. How many did David have? 600. Five to one. You would think in all of the ratios of, of people that David is surely going to lose. Saul is pursuing him. David is hiding in the caves. In fact, that's what we read in verse 3. David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the caves. What happens? Well, we read that Saul needed to use the restroom. Verse 4. The men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Why? Because Saul went in in verse three to relieve himself and he would have gone in by himself. You know, he wouldn't have brought his entourage with him. He walks into the cave. He sits down and he's in a very vulnerable spot. And David is in the same cave out of all the caves that that are in that region. These two are together. David's men say to David, here's your chance. You can kill him. In fact, not only do they say, here's your chance. What do they say in verse four? Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you. They're trying to tell David, hey, David. God is giving you permission to end this man's life. Does David kill Saul? No. What does he do? He arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. 
And in verse 5, as soon as David does that, like, and we're going to read about why he did that. As soon as he does that in verse 5, his conscience bothered him because he cut off the edge of Saul's robe. He said to his men in verse 6, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord. Now, David would have been completely justified in defending himself. Falsely accused, pursued at no end. I mean, we're talking years of his life. He is running from Saul. Not just a day, a week, a few months, years away that his life has been disrupted by Saul. But but David believes God's word so much that he says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. Saul was once the Lord's anointed. Saul was, at one point, God's king. It's not his way to fast track his ascension to the throne. And so the rest of chapter 24 is interesting because... Saul walks out, David cries out to him, and David responds submissively. He bows before Saul, and then he shows him proof of the robe that he cut off. He said, Saul, listen, I'm not out to get you. I had the chance. Here's the proof. This is a part of your robe. I could have done a lot more, but he doesn't. He doesn't. How does Saul respond Saul regrets and weeps in verse 16. When David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. It reminds me of 1 Samuel 16. As Saul was mad and would hear David's music, his spirit was calm. He hears David's voice and there's a calm that is brought over his madness. And he weeps. In verse 20, Saul acknowledges that David will one day be king. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. And then he says, please, when you ascend to the throne, verse 21, you're not going to wipe out the rest of my family. And when you read the end of 1 Samuel and the first chapters of 2 Samuel you get the sense David keeps his word. He does not do anything but lift up the name of Saul. So verse 22. As David swears to Saul, Saul went to his house. David went to the stronghold. David does not complain and David does not presume that he should do anything that the Lord hasn't given him the, the strength and purpose to do. In chapter 25, there's kind of an interlude between Saul and David, and we're introduced to another man, Nabal. But it fits into the, the events of what's going on in David's life as he's trusting God. And David is greatly wronged in chapter 25 here as well. And so in chapter 25, we read in verse 1 that Samuel died. It's kind of like an interlude that is brought into the text. You know, the the events of David's life are unfolding, and the writer of 1 Samuel says, oh, by the way, Samuel dies. A spiritual advisor for David is gone. 
the whole country pauses to mourn. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So David and his men, the 600 men that are with him, are in the wilderness. They're, they're living life. They're doing their thing. And what is one of the things that they're doing? They're, they're kind of hired protection for the, the sheep and the flocks of some of the people that had much wealth. They come across this man, Nabal, and, and we know, we get the sense, right, he's very wealthy. He has a thousand goat, three thousand sheep. The text says he's very rich. And David and his men in the area are warriors. And they protect the flocks from the attacks of animals and also from the raiders of other people that would want to come in and steal from the flocks. And so as hired hands, they want to be paid. And so payday is coming. David's thinking, yeah, he'll take care of us. Remember, they're nomads at this point. They need to survive. But payday comes and Nabal says, I'm not paying him. I'm not giving him anything that he's due. Now, Nabal's name in the Hebrew means full. And I think it's a very appropriate name for how he acts. And so there was no payment made. What happens? David is angry. What does David want to do? He wants to send his men into Nabal's home and wipe them out. You might think that doesn't seem very David of David. At this point, David wants to react. And God providentially provides for David. And you need to see this because I think in our own lives, God providentially provides for us when we want to react, but we have to see it. And so what do we read in this passage in chapter 25? God provides for David through Nabal's wife, Abigail. Abigail is really the, the main person in this chapter. It's not David. It's not Nabal. It's not anyone else but Abigail. She is described as beautiful and smart and wise. And Nabal is described as a fool, as this terrible person, as all about himself. How did he land this gem of a wife? I don't know. Maybe he was the star of the football team or something. I don't know. But listen, he, he doesn't know what's going on. His wife steps out on her own and intercedes. And she goes to David with all this stuff and goes before David and says, and like she prostrates herself on the ground and says, David, have mercy on us. Here is what is due to you. And David's like, okay. I mean, David calls out to her and basically says, you have spared your family's life. In verse 21, we read, now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. And isn't that how we feel sometimes? 
I'm trying to do good, Lord. I was trying to do the right thing. And this person is just totally steamrolling me and wants to pay back evil for the good. And as she prostrates herself before David, she acknowledges some things about him. She understands that that he is going to be the next king. Verse 30. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Abigail saying, David, we know you're going to be the king. God gave her the insight that he is the Lord's anointed. And she's like, remember us. So that you don't, because you you didn't do this thing, you're not going to have a guilty conscience and you can go and serve God as king. Just remember us. David accepts the offering. He sends her off to her husband. When she gets home, how does she find her husband? He threw a party and he's drunk. And she's like, oh gosh. Like I, I stuck my neck out for this guy. I come home and this is how he's acting. He should be on his knees thanking God for God's protection. But he's out indulging his flesh and he's drunk. And so she's like, I'll I'll talk to him in the morning. What happens the next morning? Verse 38. Well, verse 37. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, right? he, He slept it off. His wife told him these things and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. Now, that's a very creative Hebrew way of saying he had a stroke. And then verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. The Lord vindicated David. David did not need to take actions in his own hand. The Lord vindicated his righteous son. So Abigail doesn't have a husband. What does David do? He hears that Nabal died in verse 39. Blessed be the Lord who had pleaded the case of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. So he adds to his family. David is going to get himself in trouble over the amount of wives that he collects over his life. Now, we read in verse 44 of chapter 25 that Saul had been had given Michael, who was his first wife, to someone else because David hasn't been around for years. So Michael is no longer his wife, but David takes Abigail and he not only takes Abigail, he takes another wife. Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Good luck on those anniversaries, David. But David doesn't react to the evil being done. He trusts God. And then in chapter 26, we see another encounter of David and Saul. So these are like bookends, right? David and Saul in the cave. 
the issue with Nabal and David's response there, and now another issue with David and Saul. This time, David is the one pursuing. We read in chapter 26 that Saul and his camp are, are camped out in an area, and David is nearby, and Saul is asleep. It's at night. Spies were sent in. They saw where Saul was, and, and David goes and hears and, and comes to Saul while he is asleep. In chapter 26, Abishai, who is with David in verse eight, Abishai is his nephew, David's sister's son. He says in verse eight, today, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke and I will not strike him the second time. He's like, David, give me the order. I will kill him right now. Sounds like the men in the cave. David, let's do it right now. Here's our chance. Saul's asleep. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt. He had every chance. And David said, no, it's not my job to do this. It's my job to trust God, even when I'm wronged. And so what happens is they take Saul's spear and a jug of water and they leave. And then they cry out to Saul. Right they're on opposite sides of the canyon. They're they're talking with each other. Saul wakes up and he's like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Oh, it's David. David, what are you doing? And David's like, I have your spear like yours. The weapon with that, that is always to be with you. And I didn't kill you. And so Saul cries crocodile tears again. Says, I'm so sorry. But Saul never repents. He shows remorse, but he never repents. He never changes his heart. He never changes his actions. Saul even acknowledges in verse 21, I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. So Saul acknowledges that, but David's like, I'm not going back to Israel. Because as soon as I leave, Saul's anger is going to flare up again. And he's going to be after me. So they depart. This is the last recorded conversation between these two men ever. David, in in the remaining chapters in 1 Samuel, is going to leave Israel until it's time for him to return. And we're going to talk about that next week. David had every chance to take matters in his own hands. He would have been justified to bring harm to Saul. But the Lord calls us to a higher way. Love your enemies. Matthew 5.44 adds, pray for those who persecute you. Boy, isn't that fun? Like, I'm not, pray, I'm not saying that we pray, okay, God, I'm going to pray about this person. Can you bring judgment upon them? Because, you know, you did it all these other times. Can you please do that in this case? Like, God, I won't do it, but I want you to do it. Drop your hammer heavy. And we make it all spiritual. 
And then we read in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then a few verses later in Romans 12, we read, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Hard stuff, right? Especially when we feel justified. It should never surprise us when sinful people mistreat us. It should never surprise us. We must respond like David, who in those moments refused to retaliate for the wrongs that were committed against him. When conflicts arise, God is calling us to be wise. Do not react in the moment. Take time. Pray. Seek godly counsel. God providentially provided for David through Abigail. She interceded. Listen, I can't tell you how many times I've been ready to respond to someone in a situation. Like, seriously. And I've just learned in life and through the wisdom of God, through His Word, If I give myself even just 24 hours, I feel a lot different a day later than I do in that moment. You know, before you hit send on the email or the text message, you might want to write it. Don't send it. Before you see that person and react and say all the things that you're feeling in that moment, Shut your lips. Talk to people you know who love Jesus. Ask for wisdom. The situation still hurts. But in the time that God gives, as we are able to calm down from how we feel, we don't feel like we have to defend ourselves as much. There's another thing that giving ourselves time gives us the opportunity to do. Instead of pursuing vengeance, time allows us to pursue forgiveness. To forgive those that have hurt us. To seek restoration with those who have acted against us. Forgiveness is the most powerful thing that we can do when wronged. And it's not easy. It is not easy. Forgiveness, though, frees us from the bondage of the actions of another. When we forgive someone, we are breaking ourselves free from what they have done. And we are choosing not to remember again their actions towards us. And that's the way that God thinks of us. And I would love to say that forgiveness is a once and done act. It's not. It is for God. He's really good at it. Really good at forgiving. Not us. 
Because unless we have amnesia, it is very difficult to forget. Forgiveness is the journey of I forgive you and every day I am choosing to keep forgiving you. And Jesus handled that in in Matthew 18 when he says, if you don't forgive, you have not received forgiveness, nor will the Father forgive you. There is no other Christ-like example than to forgive those who have wronged us. To To love this way admits that we trust God is completely sovereign over us in his creation. Let's pray.